Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at the New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Caitlin Dickerson. This is The Daily. Today, Senate Republicans can afford to lose just two votes as the health care bill heads toward a vote this week. That means President Trump's promise to repeal Obamacare could come down to one issue, abortion. And they say he's speaking for the dead, how the families of people killed by immigrants without legal status have become the emotional cornerstone of another of President Trump's signature issues. It's Monday, June 26th. Cheryl Gay Stolberg, what's threatening the passage of the Senate health care bill this week? Well, one of the biggest threats has to do with abortion. Two provisions. First, the Senate bill would defund Planned Parenthood for a year, and it would also bar the use of federal tax credits to help purchase insurance plans that include abortion coverage. And that is proven to be a real sticking point, especially with two of the female Republican senators, uh, Susan Collins of uh, Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. But I will not vote to deny Alaskans access to the health services that Planned Parenthood provides. It makes absolutely no sense to eliminate federal funding for Planned Parenthood. Is it any coincidence, Cheryl, that the two Republican senators we're hearing from who have strong misgivings about taking money away from Planned Parenthood, that they're both women? It is absolutely no coincidence at all, in my view, that they're both women. This is something that really hits at women's own experience. Mm -hmm. So in my view, it's not at all surprising that the biggest roadblocks to this provision lie with Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. And Planned Parenthood is an important provider of health care services, including family planning and cancer screenings for millions of Americans, particularly women. And they should be allowed to choose the health provider that they want. How does abortion fit into the much larger American health care system? There's Medicaid on the table. Uh, there's, there's insurance coverage broadly. There are pre-existing conditions. I mean, where does abortion fit into that landscape? Well, abortion is actually a very small part of that landscape. And it's also a very small part of what Planned Parenthood does. So in that sense, I guess you're right. It is seemingly a side issue, Mm -hmm. but a very politically divisive side issue. And it's an issue that is an attention grabber. It's a headline grabber. It's something that both sides can sum up in a soundbite, whereas the larger health care bill is 
maybe a confusing picture. Okay. And can we back up a little bit, and can you just tell us what exactly does the Senate bill propose to do to Planned Parenthood? Okay, so the Senate bill would cut off funding for Planned Parenthood, and Planned Parenthood gets about $550 million a year in federal funding. And the bill would cut it off, although only for just one year. Okay. And that's kind of a very interesting note. The bill would cut off funding for only one year, in fact, because it would be very expensive to cut off funding for more than that. The Congressional Budget Office has noted that cutting off funding for Planned Parenthood longer than a year would actually increase federal spending on health care because so many women who were using Planned Parenthood to get birth control would not get birth control and therefore more babies would be born and those babies would be covered by Medicaid. So this clearly is not about saving money. No, this is clearly an ideological fight. Now, the fight in front of us feels like a climax of a really long-fought battle between pro-abortion and anti-abortion groups. Talk a little bit about what led up to this really high-stakes moment in front of us. Well, it's been building for years, but especially hit a crescendo during the election. Mm-hmm. I am pro-life. Uh, I've, I had an experience with a friend of mine who was, frankly, uh, they were going to abort their child, which they ended up having, and their child is like this magnificent person, and it had an impact. I've when seen Donald Trump was running for president, he signed a letter, a commitment, that he would satisfy anti-abortion advocates for demands. Among those demands was appointing a Supreme Court justice who would overturn Roe v. Wade, and another of those demands was to defund Planned Parenthood. And in fact, Marjorie Dannenfelser, who heads the Susan B. Anthony list, uh, which is an anti-abortion group, told me that that was the most valuable piece of paper her organization has ever received. Wow. That commitment that President Trump wrote. And she's told me that this was their chance to defund an organization, she said, that we think is evil. It's at that level that This is something that they've been pushing for and pushing for, and they're not going to let it slip away so easily. Mm -hmm. And now defunding Planned Parenthood for a single year, though, it doesn't feel on its face like a massive victory. But is it a massive victory symbolically or otherwise? Yes, yes. And more so than a symbolic victory, though, it would really be a devastating hit for Planned Parenthood. Federal funding accounts for roughly 41% of Planned Parenthood's budget. Mm -hmm. If this goes through, Planned Parenthood clinics around the country will close. Planned Parenthood has about 600 clinics around the country. Okay. We have a guide of what this would look like in the states. In Texas, Texas sought to cut off funding for Planned Parenthood and for clinics that provide abortion, and some 30% of its family planning clinics closed, we would absolutely see poor women going without basic medical care that they get from Planned Parenthood. They would probably be going without birth control, and they might be having more babies. Okay, Cheryl, thanks so much for talking with us. Okay, thank you, Caitlin. This weekend, Senate Republicans were rushing to lock down support for the health care bill, trying to win over members of their own party before they go on recess at the end of the week. 
There's no way we should be voting on this next week. I have a hard time believing Wisconsin constituents or even myself will have enough time to properly evaluate this for me to vote for a motion to proceed. So Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and other Senate leaders are drafting amendments and cutting deals to appease the growing number of Republican senators who have said they either cannot support the health care bill as drafted or have misgivings. On Sunday, President Trump went on Fox News to express his confidence that the bill will pass. Healthcare is a very, very tough thing to get, but I think we're going to get it. We don't have too much of a choice because the alternative is the dead carcass of Obamacare. That's what it is. We'll be right back. When times became uncertain, Womply pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Womply has helped one million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Womply helps small businesses thrive. Visit Womply.com to learn more. My name is Steve Ronnebeck. I live in Mesa, Arizona. My son was killed by an illegal immigrant criminal January 22nd, 2015. Man by the name of Apollonar Altamirano went into the quick trip where Grant was working at about three thirty, quarter to four in the morning. Dumped a jar of change out on the counter and wanted to buy cigarettes. Grant started to count the change, and Altamirano said, "What? You're not going to give me my cigarettes?" And Grant tried to explain to him that he had to count the change. Altamirano then produced a gun, pointed it at Grant. Grant immediately gave him the cigarettes, and Altamirano executed him, shot him point blank in the face. How did you find out what happened to Grant? Mesa Police Department had sent some detectives over to the house, and they had told me that they had caught the person and that he was an illegal. He had been previously arrested for doing a home invasion sexually assaulting the woman's house that they had broken into, that he had been able to plead it down to just second-degree burglary, that he had just gotten done with probation. Then they went into the details, how they arrested him. He's on a million dollars cash bond, so on and so forth. Steve, what did you decide to do after Grant's death? Well, for a while, um, it was just a matter of just trying to to function every day. Mm -hmm. And then um, my brother had had stood in for me and went and testified in front of of Congress and in front of uh, Senate hearings on illegal immigration. It is my family's greatest desire that Grant Ronnebeck's legacy will be more than a fading obituary, a cemetery plot, or a fond memory. Instead, we want Grant's death to be a force for change and reform in the immigration policies of this great nation. You know, he came back and he said, hey, it's your turn next time. So it was about that time that uh, the news media and, you know, a few of our local politicians were getting involved in it. And along with the immigrants that are coming for work, there are others that are coming for uh, criminal reasons. And they let them go, and they let them go, and they let them go, um, and deport them, and then they come right back and commit other crimes. And, and um, that's when I just decided it was time to fight. It was time to, 
put an end to the senselessness. Altamirano should have been deported, number one. Number two is if he was had been charged correctly, Grant would still be alive. What exactly was it that you began to fight for? What was the cause that you latched onto? Basically, deportation of these illegal immigrant criminals. And please don't twist it around. I'm not saying illegal immigrants. I'm saying illegal immigrant criminals. The ones that have been convicted, the ones that have been deported before that keep coming back. And it doesn't matter if they're Hispanic or if they're Guatemalan or if they're Russian or if they're Chinese. It doesn't matter. If they're here illegally and they commit a crime, they shouldn't be allowed to stay in our country. Mm-hmm. Why did this feel like the right cause for you, Steve, given you know, there's research that shows criminality isn't any more common among immigrants than it is among the general population. I just wonder why the cause wasn't gun control or some other crime mitigation tactic. First things first, the gun didn't kill Grant. The man behind the gun killed Grant. These deaths are all preventable. And and that's the thing that I latched on to. And that's the answer to the question that you had asked is, These deaths are preventable. Had these illegal immigrants that committed the crimes before, had they been deported and not been able to come back into our country, these deaths are completely preventable. And and it's all just a matter of enforcing the laws that we have and securing our border. Did you feel like you were being heard? Were you having any success? To a certain extent, yes. I, I was having some success. But it wasn't out there. It wasn't this huge, huge issue until Donald Trump. They are being released by the tens of thousands into our communities with no regard for the impact on public safety or resources. I wasn't real sure of President Trump when he first jumped into the campaign. Um, I had actually endorsed Senator Cruz first. And why were you skeptical of the president? (laughs) You know, the, the only thing that made me skeptical, and this is literally the only thing that I was skeptical about, was Mm -hmm. his Twitter, him tweeting (laughs) at two or three in the morning and all these tweets that were coming out. It just didn't seem normal. So what changed with Donald Trump? And you said initially you supported Senator Cruz. So you know, what was he doing differently? What was it that spoke to you about his message? Well, Senator Cruz had dropped out of the race. And I, I, at that point, I figured, okay, I'm done. And then um, the Trump campaign had contacted me and asked me if I would speak at one of, of Trump's rallies. And I was like, sure, no problem. He brought in a lot of people who happened to have lost loved ones to accidents or shootings that involved unauthorized immigrants. Vivian Yee covers immigration for The Times. In some ways, these people are immune to political criticism because what can you really say to someone who has lost their child in a tragedy? Name your child and come right by. Go ahead. Laura Wilkerson and my son was Joshua Wilkerson. He was murdered by an illegal in 2010. And I personally support Mr. Trump for our next president. And they really became these incredibly powerful voices for him on the campaign trail because they could really speak from the deepest kind of part of human experience about how this issue had affected them. 
And so, you know, in some of these rallies, you could hear a pin drop. I'm Steve Ronnebeck, father of Grant Ronnebeck, 21 years old, killed January 22nd, 2015 by an illegal immigrant who shot him in the face. Um, I truly believe that Mr. Trump is going to change things. He's going to fight for my family, and he's going to fight for America. In just a little story, I can remember one of his uh, staffers had come and said, hey, it's time for you to go up on stage. We need you to get up on stage. And the president turned to him, and he says, I'm not done. I'm talking to these people. They can wait. He actually put his rally on hold for about 10 minutes so that he could talk to us. And what did you think about what he said that day? That was a really controversial speech. President Obama and Hillary Clinton. Have engaged in gross dereliction of duty by surrendering the safety of the American people to open borders. And you know it better than anybody right here in Arizona. You know it. I agreed with it. I can remember being there with Marianne Mendoza, the mother of, of Sergeant Brandon Mendoza, the, the Mace police officer who was killed by the wrong way driver that was an illegal immigrant. And just looking at her and her looking at me, and we're just in awe that somebody is actually hearing. They hear us. They see us. For the first time since I started doing what I was doing, it actually seemed like, wow, I am making a difference. Somebody is hearing me. Somebody does know about my son. That's what kind of hit home for me. This idea has been out there on the far right for a while that immigrants are, many of them are, are dangerous to the American public, that they shouldn't be here, that they're threatening the safety of Americans. And uh, these families are, are kind of the, the perfect embodiment of, of that idea. And so I can't speak to where... The president originally got his ideas about immigration, but definitely by the time he met with these families, I think that became emotional and, and human evidence for, for what he was saying. So looking back on the campaign and now that President Trump is in office, what are the concrete policies that came out of all this work, all this activism with these families? I think a lot of people talk about how the president hasn't accomplished what he might have liked to in Congress. But on immigration, he's really pushed ahead with the promises that he made on the campaign trail. The wall hasn't been built, but the federal government is, is cracking down on people who are in the country illegally in numbers that are definitely up from where we were last year. They're, in some cases, pushing to criminalize a lot of violations associated with immigrants. So while he might not be as far along as he might want to be on some of these other issues, I think to his supporters, he can definitely point to a lot of his actions on immigration and say, you know, I'm, I'm following through. So Vivian, looking back on what he's been able to do as president, did bringing these families into the fold work for him? I'm going to say yes. I think that what becomes really powerful in politics is when you can kind of reduce it down to its essentials. Mm -hmm. And Trump's theme throughout his campaign was, it's dangerous to have these people here. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. 
And these people demonstrated that in a really powerful, in a really emotionally powerful way. President Trump gave us a venue for us to get our stories out and to tell America what's happening and what happened to our children. And for the first time, I feel like my son didn't die for absolutely no reason whatsoever that that this man is going to give my son's death meaning. Steve, thank you so much for talking with us, and I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you, ma'am. I appreciate it. That's it for The Daily. I'm Caitlin Dickerson. Michael Barbaro will be back on Thursday. See you tomorrow. Thanks to Fat Tire, the future of beer is here, and it tastes awful. You heard that right. This Earth Day, Fat Tire, America's first certified carbon-neutral beer, is releasing Torched Earth Ale, an intentionally bad beer brewed to inspire the 70% of Fortune 500 companies who do not have a real climate plan to make one now before it's too late. Climate change is bad for the planet and for business. And this is the last call. Join Fat Tire in telling the world's biggest companies to step up on climate now at drinksustainably.com.